This is the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, the host and creator of this podcast that takes a look back at some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters. Hey folks, I had some technical issues that set me behind this week. I have some other projects I'm working on, and I had a lot of research to do. So this week is a encore presentation of a previous episode, and I'll be back next week with an all-new Notorious Bakersfield story. Remember, I welcome suggestions for future stories. If you have a story idea, you can contact me through the website, NotoriousBakersfield.com. Click the contact link to send me a message. And while you're at NotoriousBakersfield.com, you can show your support. Click the support link to buy me a cup of coffee. Be sure to follow the Notorious Bakersfield social media pages. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Pictures related to each episode, including this one, are posted to those social media pages. Before getting into this story for this episode, I'm going to answer a listener's question. Hello, Robert. This is Linda, and we've spoke before via email. My question for you is, what is your background that has led you to be curious about the notorious people and events in Bakersfield? Thank you. Thank you, Linda, for that question. I've talked about this uh, when I've been a guest on other podcasts, but I've never actually discussed it on this podcast. So this will give me the opportunity. First off, let me clarify. I don't have any journalism experience. I don't have any media background. Now, what made me curious about notorious people and events in Bakersfield? I've always had an interest in news and current events and crime and local history. I'm a Bakersfield native. My mom was a Bakersfield native. I was born in Bakersfield, but I grew up all over the world. My family first moved away from Bakersfield when I was five. We lived, we lived overseas um, until I was a teenager. No matter where we were living in the world, Bakersfield was always home. When we moved away, my parents kept their house. We came back every summer to spend summer vacations in Bakersfield. My parents always intended to move back to Bakersfield when my dad retired, and that's what we did. We moved back to Bakersfield when I was a teenager, and I graduated from Highland High School in 1986. Even though we moved away and lived other places, for me, Bakersfield has always been home. I've always had a connection to Bakersfield. Now, I'll take this opportunity to explain how Notorious Bakersfield came about. I've talked about it, as I said, on other podcasts, but never here. So I'll let, use Linda's question as an opening for that. In 2020, at the beginning of COVID, during the lockdown, I began researching how Bakersfield responded to the Spanish flu pandemic. I began reading a lot of old newspapers from that era. And doing so, I would run across these fascinating stories, and I wanted to retell these stories, these interesting stories that I was surprised as a native I'd never heard about. At first, I considered writing a blog, but 
I don't think I'm a very good writer. I feel I'm a much better oral storyteller than a writer. And if you're thinking, oh, wait, isn't oral storytelling the same as writing a story? No, no, there's a lot of differences. I had no prior experience with podcasting, so I had to become a quick study. I didn't know anything about the equipment or the software. I had to learn all about that. See, some good things happen because of COVID. Thank you, Linda, for that question and for giving me the opening for, for that explanation of how Notorious Bakersfield came about. Now, if you have a question you'd like to ask me, go to NotoriousBakersfield.com. There's a microphone icon. Click on it and record your question. I could play it on a future episode and your voice can be on a future episode. NotoriousBakersfield.com. Click the microphone icon. I will say this. the For some reason, it doesn't work right on phones if you're accessing the website from your phone. It, if, you, if it doesn't work, go to a computer, your laptop or your desktop, and uh, you can do it on... It works much better on a computer. So, NotoriousBakersfield.com. The story I'm going to tell you about on this episode is a story people have told me about, but nobody could ever give me the year or any of the names of the people involved. That is, until very recently. The twist in this story, I promise, will make you feel like you have whiplash. It's definitely a WTF moment. When I got to this part of the story, I was like, what the... Yeah. Before beginning... I need to give you a warning. This crime involves domestic violence and spousal abuse. If you are a victim of domestic violence, call the Open Door Network, formerly the Alliance Against Family Violence and Sexual Assault. Call their 24-hour crisis hotline at 661-322-1091 for assistance. The location of this story was in the parking lot of the Valley Village Shopping Center, the shopping center on the northeast corner of Ming Avenue and Real Road. Shakura Buffet, Guitar Center, TJ Maxx are located there today. Back in 1986, Peter Piper Pizza was located in that same shopping center. On August 12, 1986, around 9 p.m., Ramon Garza was driving through this parking lot when he witnessed a late 1970s model Volvo strike a pedestrian. The man flew up on the hood. He managed to hold on for a few seconds before rolling off onto the pavement. The man got up as the car sped away. He ran to the rear of a parked vehicle. This is when Garza noticed that the car that ran the man down turned back and raced towards the man again. This time, the Volvo rear-ended the parked car, crushing the man between the two vehicles. The collision was so powerful that it pushed the parked car out of its parking spot. The man fell to the ground, and the Volvo ran over the body, dragging it through the parking lot 
75 feet before dislodging and rolling to a curb. The Volvo exited the parking lot going south on Real Road. Garza pursued the fleeing car south through the Ming and Real Road intersection. Just a few blocks south of Ming Avenue, near Ora Vista, the Volvo sputtered to a stop. The female driver exited from the driver's side. She calmly locked the doors and proceeded to walk away. Garza got out of his vehicle and yelled at her to stop. She turned around towards him and reached into her purse. Garza pushed her to the ground and grabbed her purse. By this time, other witnesses began arriving to where Garza was holding the woman. As they lay on the ground, the woman said, quote, He gave me hell for 24 years and now he's paid for it. Garza told the woman, quote, Well, I think you killed him. Her response was, quote, I hope so. This is 24 years of hell. Early summer 1986, Sam and Glinda Crosley separated. Sam moved in with his mother while Glinda stayed in the family home. Sam Crosley was an insurance salesman and Glinda worked as an aide at Bakersfield College. The couple had been married 24 years and had three daughters. Sam confided to a friend that he separated from his wife because he felt trapped. He claimed Glinda didn't want a divorce and followed him around. Sam began attending a singles group at Friends Community Church on Ming Avenue. On August 4th, 1986, Sam told Glinda to meet him at his mother's house where he was staying. He had a check and some legal papers to give her. During this encounter, Glinda attempted to run Sam over with her car. The next evening, August 5th, Glinda followed Sam to the singles meeting at Friends Community Church. One week later, same thing, Sam goes to the singles meeting and Glinda unexpectedly shows up. After this meeting, a group from the singles group decided to go to Peter Piper Pizza for a bite to eat. Sam volunteers to stay behind to help another man clean up the meeting room. He tells this other man that his primary reason for helping clean up was because he wanted to avoid a confrontation with his estranged wife. He planned on joining the others at the restaurant. He just wanted to give Glinda enough time to leave to avoid seeing her. He left the church and drove to Peter Piper Pizza. When he was walking from his car through the parking lot, he saw Glinda sitting in her car. Witnesses said there was a verbal confrontation between the two. Glinda was in her car. Sam was standing beside it. He cursed at her and told her to leave him alone. Get out of my life. Sam turned around to walk towards the pizza parlor. And that's when Glinda ran Sam down twice there in the parking lot of Peter Piper Pizza, with several people from the singles group as eyewitnesses. Sam was transported to Kern Medical Center, where he succumbed to his injuries. He was 42 years old. Glinda was arrested for her husband's murder. 
Glinda went on trial the following summer. The prosecution opened by recounting the last week of Sam's life. He focused on the last few hours when Glinda showed up uninvited to the singles meeting. Then the encounter in the parking lot of Peter Piper Pizza. Her attorney, Deputy Public Defender Gary Turnbull, remember this guy's name, Gary Turnbull presented an emotional opening statement. He argued that Glinda ran her husband over and killed him because she was a victim of battered wife syndrome. The defense attorney criticized the district attorney for only focusing on the week leading up to Sam Crosley's death. The defense attorney said, to understand this relationship fully, it has to be in the context of the entire 24-year marriage. Turnbull told the jury that he was going to show them, the jury, 24 years of hell, that they'd be convinced that Glinda was the true victim, not her husband, the man she killed. The couple's three daughters sat in the courtroom listening to these opening statements. When the trial resumed after the weekend break, Turnbull opened with testimony from Glinda's two sisters, two daughters, and a family friend. Each witness testified to horrific physical abuse Glinda Crosley and her children suffered, victims of Sam Crosley. A psychologist testified that after examining the defendant for 12 hours, she, the psychologist, determined Glinda suffered from a classic case of battered wife syndrome. During the cross-examination of this psychologist, the prosecution was able to establish several key points that chipped away at the battered wife syndrome defense. It was Sam who left Glinda, not the victim leaving the abuser. Glinda followed her estranged husband to the singles group meeting then to the restaurant after the meeting. Each of the witnesses who testified in Glinda's defense admitted that it had been a long time since any of them witnessed Sam abusing Glinda. Several of the witnesses testified that Sam took measures to avoid contact with Glinda, driving home the point that this wasn't behavior an abuser would employ. Both the prosecution and defense rested their cases. Closing arguments were scheduled for the following morning. But that next morning, when everyone was prepared to hear closing arguments, Turnbull, Glinda's defense attorney, asked the court's permission to reopen the defense case. The attorney wanted Glinda to testify in her own defense. The judge granted Turnbull's request. Glinda detailed the abuse she allegedly suffered on several occasions, breaking down, crying, and wailing on the stand. The defendant claimed that the incident where she tried running over her husband the first time a week before she actually did run him over, when she met him to get the legal papers, Glinda claimed her husband became irate for no reason at all. She said, he retrieved a tire iron from the trunk of his car and threatened her with it. Fearing for her life, she attempted to run him down. She claimed it was because of that incident, 
when she encountered Sam in the parking lot a week later. After running him down and he flew up onto the hood of the car, Glenda claimed when Sam ran to the trunk of his vehicle, she feared he'd get the tire iron from his trunk. Between sobs, she claimed her husband was going to kill her. On cross-examination, Glenda was never able to fully explain why, on two different occasions, she followed her husband to those singles meetings. If she really feared for her safety, why did she keep showing up to places she knew her husband was going to be? After a prolonged deliberation, the jury found Glenda Crosley innocent of first-degree murder, but deadlocked on the lesser crimes of second-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter. According to a juror, five people on the panel felt the defendant was trying to defend herself, but in an irrational way. The other seven jurors felt she was out to kill. Since she was acquitted of first-degree murder, the district attorney's office chose to retry Glenda for second-degree murder. The defendant was released on bail pending the outcome of her second trial. And this trial took place in April 1988. Like the first trial, Glenda never disputed killing her husband. Her justification for the murder continued to be self-defense, that she did what she did because she was the victim of domestic abuse. At the end of that trial, Glenda Crosley was found guilty of second-degree murder. The second jury determined Glenda intentionally and willfully killed her estranged husband. When the verdict was read aloud, pandemonium broke out in the courtroom. One of Glenda's daughters erupted verbally. She jumped from her seat and ran into the hall, crying and wailing echoed into the courtroom from the hallway. From the defense table, a visibly distraught Glenda pleaded for somebody to help her daughter. After the jury was polled and each juror confirmed his or her guilty verdict, Glenda Crosley uttered, quote, You've destroyed my life, my whole life. At her sentencing hearing, Glenda's family members, her daughters, her sisters, and her mother-in-law, the mother of the man she killed, asked the judge for leniency. Her defense attorney requested the judge sentence the convicted murderer to probation or reduce the conviction to manslaughter. The judge expressed sympathy for Glenda's situation, but concluded the jury reached the appropriate verdict. He ultimately rejected the defense counsel's request and sentenced Glenda to prison for a term of 15 years to life. You don't think this is the end of the story, do you? No. Eight and a half years into serving her sentence for murdering her husband, Glenda Crosley asked a Kern County Superior Court judge to overturn her conviction. Glenda argued her defense attorney, Gary Turnbull, had a conflict of interest while defending her in both of her trials. What was the conflict of interest? During Glenda's first trial, Turnbull was having a sexual affair with one of her daughters. When that relationship ended, Turnbull began having an affair with a different daughter of Glenda's. And that relationship resulted in birth of a child. 
When these sensational allegations came to light, Gary Turnbull admitted to the relationships with his former client's daughters, but he denied they were a conflict of interest. He asserted that his involvement with Crosley's daughters didn't affect his judgment. He said he was always on her side. Turnbull disagreed with the verdict, saying the jury should have found his client guilty of manslaughter. But he maintained Glenda got a fair trial. He claimed this latest move was a ploy for her to get a new trial. Glenda Crosley didn't get a new trial. She remained incarcerated, serving her sentence at the California Institution for Women in Chino. Throughout her incarceration, Glenda was an advocate for victims of domestic violence. She counseled fellow inmates who suffered the effects of spousal abuse. She was one of several women featured in a 2009 documentary film, Sin by Silence. Glenda Crosley died in prison in 2013, only five weeks after she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She was 69 years old when she died. At the time of her death, her supporters were working to get her conviction overturned. A new California law allowed those convicted in the past to be reviewed to see if there was domestic abuse evidence that was suppressed or dismissed during their criminal trials. Glenda died before she got that chance. Gary Turnbull, Glenda's defense attorney, is now retired. He was practicing law as a defense attorney here in Bakersfield as late as 2019. Let me say this about the Bakersfield Californians' coverage of this story. I can usually determine how prominent a story is going to be by where it's placed in the newspaper. If it's on the front page, it's a big story. If it's on the front page of the local section, it's a big story, but not as big as one on the front page. When this story was first printed in the Bakersfield, Californian, the day after Glenda Crosley ran over and killed her husband, it was buried on the fourth page of the local section. I'm not sure why. I don't know what that says about it. Maybe the editors didn't have room in the paper. Or maybe they didn't think it warranted a more prominent placement. I just thought it was odd. Later, every story related to this case was published on the front or second page of the local section. Also, the reporter who covered the majority of this story for the Bakersfield Californian was Michael Trahe. His reporting was superb. Trahe was extraordinarily succinct, comprehensive, and detailed in reporting this story, something that is lacking in today's local print journalism. I'd like to remind you once again, if you're a victim of domestic violence, call the Open Door Network, formerly the Alliance Against Family Violence and Sexual Assault. Please call their 24-hour hotline at 661-322-1091. Resources used for this story, the Bakersfield Californian and the Los Angeles Times. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'll be back next week, next Tuesday, with another Notorious Bakersfield story. Have a good week.